you have not yet turned in your Bibles to Psalm 48, go ahead and do that now. My name is David, and it's fitting I get to preach today as we celebrate the sale of the Robinwood building and all the ministry that happened at Robinwood. I was the pastor there for a couple of years, so it's good to be preaching today as we commemorate that particular day. We are jumping back into our summer psalm series. We do this every summer. And it can be a bit of an abrupt shift for us. If you think about coming out of Romans, where Paul unpacks his argument throughout the book in a very logical sort of a way. And then we did the, the, the short series on uh, questions that Christians must ask. Sort of a different thing that we did. So, so kind of jumping back into the psalms can be a bit abrupt because the Psalms does something much different than Romans, much different than we saw in our uh, question series. The Psalms themselves try to, they go at the heart, they go at the emotions, they go at our imagination, they use very illustrative language, they use parallel phrases to kind of describe things in a different way. If you want to think about how a psalm communicates its points, you can think about almost like looking at a diamond. Diamond's got multiple facets. You can turn it, you can examine it, you can look at it in different ways, but it's all communicating the same thing. It's it's just looking at it from much different perspectives and to see the full beauty of what is being portrayed. So as we go through the psalms, you're going to think about language that is used that is illustrative. You're going to think about language that's used that that goes after your emotions, uh, all communicating the greatness and the glory of God and the things that the psalmist writes about. So this psalm, Psalm 48, that we look at this morning, is going to draw our attention, going to draw us to look at a place. Uh, To look at a, in this particular instance, to look at a, a physical place, but it, it looks past, it looks beyond just the physical place, as we'll see. And we're meant to, to, to sort of gaze in awe and to look at this with awe and have a response to it. We're drawn to this place, Mount Zion, as the psalmist calls it, the city of the great king. Now, if you've ever been to a location and just been captivated by the sheer beauty majesty or significance of the place, um, maybe you'll, you'll kind of get what this psalmist is trying to do. So if you, you, maybe it was the first time that you went to the gorge. Maybe it was the first time that you looked out on the view of the gorge from the Vista House and saw the, the great expanse of the Columbia River Gorge and how beautiful and how majestic and how grand it is. And it just took your breath away. You just couldn't stop looking at it. Maybe it was the first time you saw the ocean. Maybe it was the first time you went to the coast and saw the Pacific Ocean. Maybe you're standing on one of the, one of the cliffs in Pacific City that overlooks the Pacific Ocean and saw the, the mightiness of the Pacific Ocean as it slams into some of those cliffs and there's water churned up and things like that. And you're just captivated by how powerful it is and, and how beautiful it is and how broad and expansive it is. And you're just forced to think on it. Maybe it was the first time you went through the, the ape, ape caves, something like that. Think about one of those times that you, you saw something or were, were in a particular place and it, and it just captivated you. A few years ago, I was traveling and, and was in the UK. And most of the time that I was there, I was there for, for about a week or ten days. I, 
Most of the time I was there, I was up in, in northern Wales. And northern Wales is beautiful. Very green, um, hilly, a lot of very narrow roads that people drive insanely fast on. I do not understand that. My prayer life escalated significantly driving around in northern Wales. But I even got a, a tour from, uh, from a couple of, of native Welshmen uh, from the north, very thick accents, couldn't understand a word that they were saying, just trusted that they were going to bring me back to where I needed to be back to, but they took me all over the countryside, and, and it was beautiful. But the last couple of days that I was there, I was able to go to London and spend a couple of days in London, and it was sort of a, a breakneck pace because there was so much I wanted to see in a couple of, in a couple of days, going to you know, Parliament Building, going, going to the Churchill War Museum, uh, going and, and seeing you know, Westminster Chapel, and all of these places that I had read about, all of these places that I had read history books about, or, or going to the Metropolitan Tabernacle where Charles Spurgeon preached, places that I'd read about, places that I'd, I'd longed to see. Now I was standing in front of them, and it was just an overwhelming sense, like what all the things that had happened here, the significance of this place. It was, it was awe-inspiring. It forced me to, to sort of pause in the midst of even the, the, the breakneck pace that we were taking and think about, wow, this is a significant place. Something significant happened here. The psalmist does that with Psalm 48. He drives us to look and to consider and to have a response to this. We're forced to consider the significance of this place that he brings us to. And we're forced to consider what our response to it's going to be. So what we see in Psalm 48 this morning, and, and what the psalmist gets, gets at today, is this, is that God resides in the midst of his people, protecting them, and eliciting their praise, contemplation, and proclamation. God resides in the midst of his people, protecting them and eliciting their praise, contemplation, and proclamation. So we're going to kind of break that down into three parts today as we kind of unpack this whole psalm. The, the first section is going to be kind of the longest, verses 1 through 8, where we look at this aspect of God residing with his people and God protecting them. The psalmist starts out, verse 1, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. The psalmist begins by noting the praiseworthiness of God. He is a, a great God. He is the great God. And in keeping with how great He is, the praise must, must match. He is, he is a great God. He is greatly to be praised. He is great and worthy of great praise. And he draws then our attention to this place. Where is He worthy to be praised, this great God? In the city of our God, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. He draws our attention now, dear friends, to, to Jerusalem. To consider the city in which God dwells. Mount Zion, the city of the great king. He is here. Why is this important? Why are we drawn to the city? I mean, what's so special about Jerusalem. What's so special about Mount Zion? 
It's not the place per se. It's not that it was the most lofty peak. It's not that it was the most beautiful architecture, though we can argue that it, that it was. It was, a, it was a beautiful place. But that's not what the psalmist is drawing our attention to, is it? He's not drawing our attention to, you know, look at simply the city for the sake of looking at the city. Don't look at, at the, the place just for the sake of looking at the place. The point that he's making is this place, and he draws our attention to it because of the one who dwells in the midst of it. This place is great. This place is majestic because it is the city of the great king. It is the city of the living God. It is where God has chosen to dwell with his people. It's the place where the the living God dwells in the midst of his people. Now, why is this so special? Why does does the psalmist want us to understand that? It bears relevance in a couple of ways. It's unique because the false gods of the world were always aloof. But here, God is dwelling in the midst of his people. He is the true and he is the living God. He is a God who is in relationship with his people. He is a God who resides in the midst of His people. From the original creation, dear friends, God dwelt in the midst of His people. We see that in Genesis 3 when God planted the garden in Eden, Genesis chapter 2. We get from Genesis chapter 3 that the the habit was that God walked in the midst of the garden with Adam and Eve when He placed the first humans there. And what happens? We know what happens. That's fractured. That's, that's destroyed in some sense because, because of sin. Adam and Eve sin, and what do they do? They are put out of the garden. That place where God uniquely manifested His presence, where God uniquely dwelt amongst His people, was now fractured. But as we read the story of the Bible, as we see redemptive history unfold, The Lord, remember, delivers His people from slavery. All throughout Scripture, you you get this continual refrain, I will be their God, they will be My people, and I will dwell in their midst. We sort of get this coming along, coming along, and then God delivers His people out of Egypt, out of slavery. In the Exodus, He brings them out to Mount Mount Sinai. He makes a covenant with them. And what happens? They're given instructions for setting up the tabernacle. The tabernacle's constructed, and God's glory fills the tabernacle. God now dwelling in the midst of His people. His glory manifested in that tabernacle, dwelling in the midst of His people. And as history continues to unfold, and the Israelites come into the land, and the temple's constructed... And God's glory fills the temple. God, again, is in the midst of His people. He is dwelling in the midst of His people. He resides there. That's what makes the city so special. That's what makes this place so significant. Is that God's there. Not away from His people. Right in the midst of them. We have a personal, living God that has fellowship with His people, dwells in the midst of His people. 
The specialness or the greatness of the place that the psalmist draws our attention to is due to the greatness of the one who inhabits the place. And it's not just the place, but think of this as the people too. It's not just the city, but there's people that are in the city. God dwelling in the midst of His people. Now you rightly ask, well, we don't really have a temple now. How does this apply to us? That's you know great and wonderful to hear. Uh, nice little historical tidbits. Super helpful. Thank you. What's next? Well, the temple, the tabernacle, it points to something greater. It points to something that's even better yet to come. Jesus himself, when he comes, is referred to as Emmanuel, God with us. He is the one, according to John chapter 1, verse 14, who came and dwelt, literally tabernacled, among us. The tabernacle and the temple in Israel on that Mount Sinai point to, points beyond themselves to the incarnate God who would come and dwell among us in the person of Jesus Christ. What is more, what does Jesus tell His disciples as He is preparing to go to the cross? John chapter 14. I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him. Listen. For He dwells with you and will be in you. So you see this trajectory going through Scripture. Jesus promises... As the one, as the incarnate God who dwells amongst his people, resides amongst his people, he promises as a, as a result of the new covenant that was being made by him that God, in the person of the Holy Spirit, would come and be with you and live in you. The gospel itself provides promises the abiding presence of the living God with His people. Those who place their faith in Christ, those who trust in Christ for salvation, are given the Holy Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit coming and living in you. Paul makes it even more clear in 1 Corinthians. He asks the question, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in you. So dear friends, as Christians, as those who have responded to the Gospel, as those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, we are given the Holy Spirit. We become the temple of God, as it were. Individually as Christians, but also corporately as the church. Chapter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, We are the temple of the living God. I will make my dwelling among them, says God, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So as the psalmist writing when he writes causes us to look on this place because this is the place where God is residing, where God resides amongst His people, he's pointing beyond it. To the fact that the incarnate God and the person of Jesus Christ would come and dwell amongst us and that when He died and rose and ascended back to heaven, 
that He would send the Spirit and the Spirit of the living God would come and reside in the people who have faith. And that we ourselves are now become the temple of the living God. The beauty of God in us. And that's not even the final step. There's a place that still awaits us. We've given, been given the Spirit. We have the Spirit. The Spirit of God resides in us. He is, a, he is a down payment. He is a security. He is a seal upon us that we can be assured of something that is yet to come even. The final temple, if you will. That's a renewed creation according to the book of the Revelation. Where God's people will dwell in God's place in God's presence. Chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, verses 1 through 4. John sees a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. He says, I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, look, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Do you get what he is saying? What the psalm points us to? As we look upon the beauty of the city because that's where the the greatness of the city is the greatness of the one who dwells in it. He points beyond that to say, look, there is something even better yet to come than this place. You have the Spirit of God in you. You are the temple of God. And for those who are the temple of God now, who have the Spirit, there is something even more to come. A renewed creation where God will dwell fully and finally in our midst and sin will be eradicated. No unrighteousness, no death, no disease. We live in a fallen world now. Our hope is that in what is to come. God says, I will dwell amongst them. They will be my people. I will be their God. That is what we have to look forward for eternity. God dwelling in our midst. We as His people. So as the psalmist turns our eyes, as it were, to Jerusalem... We don't stop simply by looking at the city saying, oh, well, that's nice. Those are lovely buildings. A fine-looking temple. We look at the one who inhabits the place, who resides there. That's what makes it so special. Our God is not a disconnected God. Our God is a God that dwells, resides in the midst of His people. The psalmist draws our attention to that. Yet what is more, this God who resides in our midst also protects His people. He secures the place where He dwells. His presence promises and provides protection. And this is what the psalmist is getting at in verses 3-8. through eight. It says, Within her citadels God has made Himself known a fortress. He, he's... He's establishing the fact that, that, that God is a stronghold. God is a fortress. God is a, a protector. 
God's going to hold on to His people. This does not mean, dear friends, and we'll come back to this later, this does not mean, dear friends, that we are exempt in some way from experiencing life in a fallen world. This does not mean that people don't go through difficult times. But it means God holds fast and holds on to those whom He has delivered. He's a refuge, a protection, a security for those who reside in His presence. And the psalmist provides a historical example. We're not sure exactly what the issue is or the, or the, the historical event is. Some think it was the impending invasion of the Assyrians. But in verses 4-8, through eight, we get this sort of historical background. God has made her, within her citadels, God has made Himself known as a fortress. Verse 3, verse 4, For behold, the kings assembled, they came together. So you get this, you get this picture of this, this amassing of forces. They're, they're, the, the, the rulers and their armies are, are coming against the city of God. It sort of harkens back to Psalm chapter 2, if, if you remember. In Psalm 2, it says, you know, the nations were raging, the peoples were plotting, the kings of the, earth, of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against God and His anointed. So there's this amassing of forces against God and against His Messiah. And here, kind of the same idea. In Psalm 48, that there's these, this, this coalition of forces that are coming against the city, that are coming against the place where God resides. And what happens? Well, in Psalm chapter 2, how does God respond to the fact that all these people are sort of taking up arms against God? It says He laughs. This is of no consequence. This is a futile effort. And here too, as soon as they saw it, they were astounded. So you get the picture. This coalition of forces marching toward Jerusalem. They get there, maybe at the, sort of at the base of the mountain, where it's set up on the hill. And they, they look at it, and all of a sudden, they are just astounded. They go into a panic. They take flight. Trembling took hold of them there. They're in anguish, and he likens it to the, the pain of, of childbirth. The, the, the Tarshish navy, whatever, however powerful that was, God wipes them out. Shattered the ships of Tarshish. So these, this, these forces that were coming against God, and against the city of God, and against the, the people, God protects them. As soon as the forces come against the city of the great king, the city of our God, they're put to flight, they're put to, to uh, panic, they tremble in fear, the navy's decimated, nothing stands against God, nothing stands against the place where God dwells. And the psalmist says, We have heard, so we have seen, in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. They have heard of God's protection, they have seen it. Whatever this historical event was, 
Whatever, whatever this was, the people had seen it or had heard about it. They'd seen God's protection of them. Now friends, the earthly temple was simply a foreshadowing of the things to come, as I said, with the dwelling place of God. The earthly temple was never meant to be permanent, and now we understand it's no longer standing, right? But the thing that God is moving toward will always stand. No enemy will stand against the place where God dwells in the midst of his people. And again, this does not mean that we are excluded from difficulty and hardship in our lives. If this was the Assyrians coming against the people, they're nothing. The ships of Tarshish, as powerful as they look, were nothing. Is there anything that can stand against God protecting His people whom He delivers? I mean, is God's protection, His security of us in salvation, only for this life? What about death? Can death somehow thwart the protection of God? No. Because we have seen and we have heard the living God Himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ has triumphed over the greatest enemy, which is death. He emerged victorious from the grave, conquering death and giving life. The protection that God gives with regards to those to whom He saves, those whom He delivers, is impervious. Nothing can snatch us from the saving hand of God. Nothing is going to take us out of God's place, out of God's hand. This is the security and the protection that we have from the Lord. Nothing can come against the place or snatch away from the place where God resides. These Israels saw it. They heard about it. They saw His protection. They saw what He did. Jesus Himself tells us that my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Those who have eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ are secured in that. No one will snatch them out of my hand, he says. What is more, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You see, this salvation that we have experienced in the Lord Jesus Christ, this salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are given the assurance of protection in that, the security of that by the authentic work, authenticating work of the triune God. Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
and we are given the Spirit, we have the Spirit of God residing in us as a seal, as a down payment on the things that are to come, that new creation that we talked about. That place, that renewed creation where God resides in the midst of His people globally. We will see that. We will experience that. We will have that. Why? Because God holds us secure in the deliverance that He has given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says it so eloquently in Romans, doesn't he? I am sure that neither death nor life Angels or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, just in case I miss something, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The fact that we have the living God residing in us means that we have the protection of the living God as well. That nothing is going to snatch us out of the hand of God. That's the confidence we have as the temple of the living God. So the psalmist draws our attention to this place because this place is where God resides. But also understanding that God protects where He resides. So God resides in the midst of His people. He protects them. Now what's the response that is elicited? What's the response here in the psalm is as they, they look to this place, as they think about the dwelling place of God, where God resides, and the protection that God had given in this particular instance with this army coming against them, what's their response? What's our response to understanding that God lives in us and seeing the protection that we have in Christ Jesus as He holds us firmly in His hand? The first thing, the immediate response, is praise. That's in verses 9 through 11. We have thought on your steadfast love, O Lord, in the midst of your temple. His steadfast love, his, his love toward them as his people whom he has redeemed. The protection that he has provided on account of the, that covenant love that he has for them, that he has redeemed. And this worship is to be worldwide. Even the psalmist sees that, that the, the name and reputation and praise of God is not simply going to be confined to a place in Israel. It's going to go worldwide on a global perspective. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the end of the earth. God's name goes out to the end of the earth and His praise will go to the end of the earth. And what's the substance of this praise? It's who He is. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. He's talking about His righteous character. That, what he, that who He is and what He does is righteous. And it talks about what He does. Let, the, let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. What He does in protecting His people securing them in their salvation, securing them in their deliverance, is good and we rejoice. What God does, anything God does, is good and right. Keep 
hating to go back to Romans, but we were just there, so why not? But what does Paul, how does Paul begin chapter 12? In light of the mercies of God, in light of the salvation that you have experienced in Christ Jesus, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Our response to God is worship. When we understand who God is, what He's done, the fact that we are also as the church, the temple of the living God, our response must be praise. I mean, just think about in, in, in your life, has, has there ever been a moment or a, a period in time where you've uniquely experienced maybe the blessing of God? Or maybe meditating on a portion of Scripture or something and, and just thinking about the greatness of God and who He is. And you start singing, like almost automatically. It just bursts out of you. I won't do this. I won't sing. I won't even ask for a show of hands, but please tell me, at least somebody nod that, that I'm not the only one who's... Okay, good. we got one person over here. That I'm not the only one. But when you experience the goodness and the grace of God, and you see His unique blessing in, his, in your life, or you understand something maybe afresh or anew or on a deeper level, than, and you just burst into song, that is what the psalmist is getting at. That's what he's driving us toward. When you see what God has done, when you see who God is, when you understand the depth of what God has done, our response can't be but to help to worship. So God residing in the midst of His people and protecting them elicits, number one, our praise. And finally, kind of two more things here, very briefly at the end, in 12 through 14. It elicits our contemplation and it elicits our praise or our proclamation. The psalmist says, walk around Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider her ramparts. Look at all these things. And why? Because if you look around all these places, these, there's not one place that there's a breach. They stand. These this army, this navy, all these forces that amassed, they didn't touch it. They didn't touch the city. There's not a speck of dust out of place. God's protection stood firm. Contemplate what He has done. Contemplate the deliverance that He has given you. I mean, we have the opportunity here shortly as church as we take communion to contemplate to think on the deliverance that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and that's what the psalmist points these people to do look at the city walk around it check it out God delivered you God delivered you from danger This deliverance and this contemplation to check this out, to look at it, has a particular purpose there, doesn't it? Look at verse 13, very end. 
He says, consider well our ramparts, go through citadels. Why? That you may tell the next generation that this is God and our God forever and ever and He will guide us forever. That you tell the next generation that the deliverance that you have experienced in God, that you have seen, that you have heard, is not meant to keep to yourself. It's meant to be told. Lord Jesus, the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, tells His disciples, tells us, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The abiding presence of the risen and ascended Christ is with His people always. But what comes before that? What does that promise, what does that uh, guarantee reinforce? It reinforces the fact that He tells the church to go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching. So the fact that God has His abiding presence with us, ought to embolden us in our disciple-making and telling people about the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't keep it to ourselves. Tell it to others. The One who has authority in heaven and earth, all authority having been given to Him, Lord Jesus Christ, the great King, has told us, Go! Go on mission. Doesn't mean you have to go to a far off land, that, though that may be. It can be going across the street and talking to your neighbor. It can be walking to the next cubicle. It can be inviting someone into your home. Whatever it is, go, do it. And know and have the boldness that the living God, the risen and ascended Christ, is with you. And the Spirit of God is in you. And so when you're on mission, when you're on point on this, Know that you are protected. That something's not going to happen to snatch you out of God's hand in your salvation. God resides in the midst of His people, protecting them and eliciting their praise, their contemplation, and their proclamation. So how do, what do we make of all this? What do, we, what do we take away from all of this? Well, number one, friends, it should be a great encouragement to you. The God of the universe resides in you. And protects you in the salvation that He's given to you. Again, this does not mean that we don't go through difficult times. This doesn't mean that you might not experience tremendous illness. That you might not go through economic hardship. That you might not experience fractured relationships that you might not experience others sinning against you. It doesn't mean any of that. But it does mean that though we walk through dark valleys sometimes, and though we go through difficult circumstances, we know that God is with us. We live in a fallen world. And we experience the effects of that. But know that God is with us. And despite what we might go through, 
despite what might happen to us in this life, what we might experience, the protection of God holds us firm. Nothing is going to separate us from Him. And when we come out the other side, whatever they may be, think upon the things that God, think upon the things of God. Maybe you learned something about God or experienced God in a different way having gone through that than you did before. And you can tell others. Know that because God dwells in you, is with us and in us that He will guide us forever and we can be sure that we will see the new Jerusalem. We will and are a part of the city. It gives us hope that God doesn't leave us somewhere along the way. God has us held strongly in His hand. We begin by asking the question, if you've been overwhelmed by the beauty and majesty of a location, a place that you've been, Maybe ask it in a different way now. Knowing God resides in our midst and secures us and protects us in our salvation, what does that elicit from you today? What does that elicit from you today? Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we are grateful for your word to us. We're grateful for the fact that you Give us these psalms that hit us in a different way than maybe we're used to with Romans or other passages of Scripture. Help us to think well on the things that we have learned today to understand that you are in our midst. You dwell with us. You protect us in the salvation that you've given us in Christ Jesus and will surely bring us to that place where we will see our Lord face to face and dwell in His presence forever and ever. The absence of any any unrighteousness and sin. We long for that day, Father. Help us to focus on that and have our hope in that. Amen. Well, dear friends, we have heard God's Word and now we have the unique opportunity this morning as we celebrate communion uh, to both see and to taste and touch the gospel. These elements point us to the fact that the Lord Jesus died for our sins, that we would have salvation in Him. So like the psalmist said, you know, contemplate these things, you know, look at these things. So as we take of the elements today, as you come forward or as you go to the back or in in the balcony, as you take of these elements... And as we hold on to them and as we we wait to take them all together, contemplate the salvation that you have in Christ Jesus. Contemplate what God has done, the deliverance that God has given you, and the fact that you have the presence of the living God residing in you.